today and next week are going to be uh, titled The Gospel and Same-Sex Attraction. And so this topic has a number of different layers and complexity to it, and so we're covering that these next couple weeks. And the reason I split it into two weeks is because the longest sermon I ever gave in the Outback was like 55 minutes, and it was on this topic, because I was trying to cover everything in one talk, and it was very difficult to do. So we decided to split it into two different talks, and so today is part one of that. Now listen, there are, um, again, a lot of complexity, a lot of different layers to this topic and discussion. But there are those that experience, of course, same-sex attraction. There are some Christians that have friends who experience same-sex attraction, and you're asking questions like, how do I love my friend well? How do I love them in Christ? And so those kinds of questions are coming uh, to your minds. And then there's also the, the Christians that will, they see it as the, like, the worst sin struggle someone can have. And so we're going to address that as well um, as we talk about this topic. And then, there, of course, there's all the political issues that are tied into this topic, like gay marriage, those kinds of things as well. And uh, so we're going to cover all of that, but not all today, of course. We're going to put, put some of that for next week. So listen, if, if you are someone who experiences same-sex attraction, I want, you to, I want to ask you this, this, this favor from me is um, please hear me out over these, these full two weeks as we talk about this topic today and also next week. Um, but today I've got to lay some groundwork biblically for what the Bible says. And then next week, I'm going to show you a short video testimony of someone, um, but also answer many questions that people have about this, this topic um, next week. So I want to start by telling you a story. Uh, when I first came to Texas at the age of 19, I moved into a house in Arlington, Texas that was owned by a church. And this house was where... A lot of the interns lived, the guy interns lived, was in this one house across the street from University of Texas at Arlington. And, uh, and so I'm in this house, and um, pretty much every guy had their own room. It was a big house, lots of space. And, uh, but there was this one guy in the house named Dustin who became a friend of mine. And um, I, had just, I was new to the house. So I didn't really know the guys that well. And, uh, of course, what happens in a house like that is guys have conversations about their struggles and those kind of things. We hold each other accountable. Um, we have those kinds of open, necessary discussions just man-to-man. And so one of the things that um, Dustin one day said, he said, we're a few months into knowing each other. And he said, hey, I need to let you know some things. The rest of the guys in this, the house already know this. But he said, I, I, I have experienced same-sex attraction. And he said, um, obviously, I've, I've not really acted on it. I've like, he was attending our church. He was actually a media intern in the main worship service at our church. And so the other guys in the house knew what he had experienced. And, and so he's kind of bringing me into the circle of trust to let me know his experience as well. And I will tell you, that it's the first person I ever knew, like, as a good friend. I'm, I'm living with this person. The first person I knew that had this, that experienced this, where I knew them really, really well. And he and I became really good friends. Um, we would have those same accountability discussions that you guys have with your friends and your peers. And even when he moved out of the house a couple years later to get an apartment somewhere else off the campus, I would go and have lunch with him occasionally and just have those same kind of conversations like you would with any other guy friend that you might have. And one thing that he really told me, he said, listen, he said, people that experience this, they need same-sex friendships. They need strong same-sex friendships. So he appreciated the fact that many of us extended friendship to him um, from that house. Now, I wish that I could tell you that, um, that Dustin is still walking with Jesus, 
Um, the last I heard or last I knew is that Dustin has now, you know, kind of come out and basically embraced this lifestyle, and now he is um, married to a man. And so I've not talked with him in years, but that is my understanding of where he's at now. I want to contrast that with someone, a man named Sam Alberry, who is a pastor and a theologian. He's from the UK, and he's now, I think, over in the States pastoring somewhere, I think, in Tennessee. But he is also, since he can remember, he is someone that is same-sex attracted, but he has chosen to never act on it. And he's written lots of books about the topic. He's written other books and commentaries as well, not on that topic. But I love reading his words, not just about that topic, but also about really anything else. He is a man that is a profound thinker, um, not just on this topic, but on many of the things related to faith. And I so appreciate his words. Now, he is someone that um, I think is probably in his maybe mid-40s, and he is still single. And he would say that if I, if I meet a woman that I'm attracted to in this way, then, of course, I would pursue her in marriage. But it just has not happened that, in that way for him yet. Now, I want to ask you a question. Which person is right? Some of you might say, well, Dustin's right. He's the person that's living out who he really is. Others of you might say, well, no, Sam is, I think, doing it the right way. He is the person I would say is the right one here. And, you, and still others in this room might say that, well, both can be right. I mean, it's okay for Christians to, to agree to disagree on this topic. And so uh, my question for you is, which perspective is the right one? We've been walking through some verses in Romans chapter 1. We'll continue that today. And I want to summarize for you just our journey through the book of Romans. Here's a summary of Romans 1.20. This is not what the verse says. This is what my words are. These are my words in summarizing this verse. Everything created tells us something about the creator. And we've, we've seen this big idea throughout Romans. We see his eternal power and his divine nature through what God has made. We've been discussing that throughout this series. So if all of creation tells us something about who God is, then that must especially be true of marriage and our sexuality. But instead of allowing creation to point us to the Creator, we often allow creation to replace the Creator. We've been discussing that the last few weeks. Then in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, we see this idea. Knowing about God is not equivalent to honoring and obeying Him. Someone can have a knowledge of God or some understanding of God intellectually, but not be living a life that's honoring him or obeying him. We saw this the last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 1. Whenever we, don't, we know about God but don't honor him as God, our mind and heart become blind and darkened. This passage even says, it says, claiming to be wise. If you read verses 20, 21 to 23, it says, they became fools. And I think we see this happening today. There is a worldly wisdom that is put before us as Christians and says, if you don't embrace this, then that means you're not compassionate and you don't see things as we see it. And there's a worldly wisdom being put forth. And if we don't accept it, then we're not seen as enlightened. We are seen as unenlightened and people that are trying to slow down progress. And the words of Romans 1, I think, are so relevant today. It says, claiming to be wise. There's a wisdom being put before us today in this way. Whenever this happens, we take good gifts from God and we turn them into God. Then we get to Romans 1, 24 to 25. A summary of that can be said this way. God hands us over to our sin 
and God gives us exactly what we want. Many people think that whenever we fall into sin, that God, God's goal is just to put these walls around us to keep us from sinning. But listen, God lets you make a choice. And if you choose that, there, Romans 1 talks about God handing people over to their sin in hopes that it will get so bad they will turn and they'll repent and turn back to him. And God does this. We see this, this happen in Romans chapter 1. He's hoping that we'll see that our sin is a dead end and we'll turn back to him in repentance. Now we continue in Romans chapter 1. Give your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And to be clear, this next passage, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. This next passage addresses those living the lifestyle of homosexuality, not someone who's just experiencing same-sex attraction. To be really clear about that, that's what verse, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27 is about. Someone who's acting on it. Here's what it says. For this reason, whoops, sorry. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Oops, I went to the wrong one here. So this addresses those that are living out same-sex actions. This is not someone who's just tempted towards it, to be really clear about that. Now listen, don't lose the greater context here. All throughout Romans, we've seen this, where Paul's talking about uh, those that exchange the creator for the creation, uh, truth of God for lies, and this leads to, to dishonoring God with our bodies, and the bigger point that Paul's making here is idolatry. That's really the big overarching point he's making in Romans chapter 1. So beneath all of our sexual desires, there is a worship malfunction, and it's called idolatry. And so sometimes that can come out in different ways, but, but every single one of us in some way is sexually broken. Now when it comes to same-sex desire, our culture says that you're just born that way to quote Lady Gaga, of course, right? Now, that's a partial truth because we're all born broken in our sexuality, but on the other side, the church has always said, well, it's just a choice. Like, you just choose to have these desires. And I think that's, that's flawed reasoning as well because, again, the lifestyle is a choice, but the desires sometimes are not a choice. And I think the culture... And even the church, historically, has done a disservice to people that struggle with this. And I think in some ways, the church that I grew up in made it sound like even the desire itself is just a total choice that someone chooses. And as I've kind of talked to people that, that experience this, they would say, many, some, some of them would say, well, that's not been my experience. I don't know where these came from, but I have these desires, and I can't really explain where they came from. Now, um, I read this morning, there was a study by a professor named Lisa Diamond. She, I think, is at University, I think, of Utah, I believe. And um, in a survey that she did on this topic, she said that the percentage of people that would say they have even a little bit of same-sex desire is actually fairly high. And for women, it's around 14%, and for men, it's around 7%. At least, in some sense, there's some same-sex desire that they've experienced. Now, 
she would say, for people that say it's just exclusively for same sex, it's much lower. For women, it's around 1%, and for men, it's around 2%. So what happens is if someone experiences any semblance of same-sex desire and attraction, even a little bit, what you, you hear our culture saying, well, this is just who you are. This must be who you are. Just embrace it, live it out. That's what our culture is saying to you. But in reality, there's, it's a lot more complex than that. That there's a lot of people that, that struggle with that desire, but not exclusively. And we'll talk more about this even next week. But I'm, I'm trying to let you, let you see here that the lifestyle, of course, I think is a choice, but the desires often are not a choice for some people. So here's the next point I want you to see, and this is going to sound shocking at first. But same-sex acts are sinful, but same-sex desires are a result of sin. Now, by that, I do not mean that this person somehow sinned in some great way in their youth, and now God's cursed them with these desires. That is not what I'm saying to you this morning. If anyone has same-sex desire, it's a reminder that we are all broken in our sexuality. But if you're someone that experiences this kind of desire, I want you to hear from me on this stage that that does not mean that you're more broken than anyone else in this room. And I will tell you that if, if you've heard people say that or imply that, we, we repent. We're sorry that that's been the message communicated maybe to you indirectly or directly from people in the church, maybe even leaders in the church. Every single one of us are broken in sin, and that affects our sexuality in different ways. So when I say this statement and say that the same-sex desires are a result of sin, I'm talking about like corporate sin, like the world's broken in all kinds of ways, and it affects each one of us differently. That's what I mean by that, not about your own individual sin when I say that statement. Sam Albury, he writes this, the presence of same-sex desire in some of us is not an indication that we have turned from God more than others or have been given over by God to further sin more than others. There's a parallel with suffering. The presence of suffering in someone's life does not, does not mean they have sinned more than someone who is suffering less. This past week, I went and visited a family who used to go to this church, and the husband is about 45, and he's dying of lung cancer. Barring a miracle, he, that's where he's headed. We, we pray that God does a miracle, of course, with him and their, with their family. But I went to go bring them some food and just to see how they're doing. And it'd be wrong for me, as horrible as this tragedy is for their family, it'd be wrong for any of us to say, oh, you must have done something really wrong and bad to be suffering in this way. We would never say that about suffering. We would never say someone has sinned more, and that's why they're suffering now. That's not really a biblical idea. And I think the same can be true of desires such as these. So the question is, why do some struggle? Well, I can't answer that question any more than why someone suffers more. But here's what a friend of mine a while back told me. This friend of mine uh, experienced the same-sex attraction, and here's what he said. He said, if it wasn't for my struggle with same-sex attraction... I'm not sure I'd be a Christian. And he said that it, it made him realize his need for a Savior. He said, I like to be self-sufficient, do everything myself, be on my own. 
And it is a sin struggle that has, has brought me to a place where I recognize my utter need for a Savior. And I've never thought of it like that. I never thought of it like in those terms. But then I was reminded and convicted, like, shouldn't all of our sin drive us to that place? Not just that, but my own struggles should drive me to a place where I recognize my need for a Savior. And for him, he said, this particular struggle is what he thinks has brought him to Jesus into salvation. And, and I said, I'm not sure how that works even theologically, but I just got to trust you and your words on that. But I also believe that, that all our sin struggles should lead to that realization that I need a Savior. And I'm insufficient in my own works. I'm insufficient in my own strength. And that's what, where, he, where, where he was brought to in this conclusion. Sam Albury goes on to say, desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. There are two responses often in the church. The first is endorsement. The second is disgust or shame. And I would say both are wrong. Both are wrong responses. So for those that, that are disgusted and believe that it's worse than other sins, I, look at all the other sins that Paul lists here in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. See if you don't see yourself on this list. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, it says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Whenever we worship creation instead of the creator, when we commit idolatry, sin never comes out as this singular expression, but it comes out in many different ways. So if you believe that same-sex desire is worse than the things that you might struggle with, the Bible does not agree with you. I mean, this list gets everybody in this room, I think. Whenever we replace the creator by worshiping the creation, God hands us over to our sin, and he gives us just what we want. And then there's this cycle that happens where sin leads to judgment, judgment leads to more sin. But part of the judgment is God handing us over to the sin that we've chosen. And we see this with all kinds of idolatry. And then look down at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Remember, when Paul writes this, he's not singling out same-sex desire. He is speaking of all sin here. So apart from Christ, he's saying we all deserve not just physical death, but eternal separation from God because of our sin. Now some might ask, well, you know, why can't we just agree to disagree on this topic? You know, some Christians believe it's wrong, some believe it's not. What's the big deal? Why can't we just agree to disagree on this topic? You know, Christians disagree on end times, how the end times are going to play out, so why can't it just be like that? Well, this last phrase in verse 32 I think doesn't allow for that. Where it says, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
So those who approve of any of the things that Paul mentions here, not just the one, but any of these, Paul is calling out anyone who gives a stamp of approval on this list of of sins. And so I want to take a moment and just go up 10,000 feet and look at a flyover of Romans chapter 1, what we've covered so far. And I want you to see the progression here. In Romans 1, 18 to 32. In verses 18 to 21, we see the unrighteous become oblivious to what is true. In verse 21, mankind falls in love with his own vanity. In verse 20, we also see that the heart that is empty is full of darkness. In verse 22, we see a new wisdom is claimed. And then 25, God's truth exchanged for a lie. In verses 23 to 25, we see they worship the creation, including their own bodies. God gives them over to their sinful desires. They engage in same-sex activity. They receive consequences for their actions. And then lastly, number 10, same-sex lifestyle is approved and celebrated in the culture. So in our world today, we are already at number 10. I mean, you know this to be true. But listen, the world is going to be the world. That shouldn't scare anybody in the room. The world's going to act like the world. Unredeemed people are going to act like unredeemed people. We should not expect an unbeliever to embrace ideas and things that you and I would say we hold to be true. We shouldn't, we shouldn't expect them to until they come to know Christ. But what should scare us and what should terrify us is that Christians are joining in agreement. And that's the scary part. We're, our culture's at number 10, but there are many Christians that are lining up and saying, no, no, I agree. I agree. And they give full-on endorsement to what God clearly, I think, calls sin. And so this part, I think, should scare us and should terrify us that this is where many people are. Now listen, the world has always been sexually confused. That shouldn't shock anybody in the room. But what is shocking is that Christians are just as confused, it seems, today. There was one guy, this pastor. I used to read some of his books before I knew where he stood on some issues. There was a guy named Brian McLaren who... He's a, he's, he was a pastor. He's also written some books, and he is one that preaches on this topic, and he does not hold the view that I hold on this topic. And whenever he was asked the question, he was asked the question if, if same-sex activity was sinful, and here's what he said. It saddens me to know that I have good friends on both sides of the issue, so I can't answer that question without offending someone. So is, is he right? Is this, a, is this a, a, an issue that upon, Christ, upon which Christians can just agree to disagree? I don't really believe that it is an issue like that. I understand the desire to be compassionate. I want to be compassionate when I talk about these topics. But we cannot sacrifice truth on the altar of compassion. Refusing to tell the truth isn't compassionate. You know, there are some topics in the Christian faith that are gray, not black and white issues. In Romans 14, Paul calls these uh, disputable matters, he calls them. But there are some issues that are non-negotiable. These are issues where the gospel is at stake. So which category does this topic fall, what does it fall into? Well, does it go into disputable matters or does it go into is it a gospel issue? And I would say, 
I believe it's a gospel issue, and here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So here's what Paul does not mean. He doesn't mean that if you've committed any of these sins, which there's a lot of sins up there, he's not saying that you can't become a Christian or that a Christian who's committed these acts will somehow lose their salvation. He's not saying that. You can't lose your salvation. We don't believe that. So on the surface, these words look kind of harsh to us, right? It looks like Paul is saying, anyone who's committed a same-sex act can't be with God for eternity. But look at, look at the other sins listed. He says sexually immoral, idolaters, thieves, greedy, drunkard, liars. This includes everybody. So Paul is not referring to people who, to those who struggle with something and then maybe repent but continue to be tempted. He's not talking about that kind of person. He's referring to those people who never repent or people who are living and walking in it but never actually turn in repentance towards Jesus. Sin is still their identity. And they're living and walking in it. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. So the point is, if you die in your sins without repenting and turning to Jesus, then yes, you will spend eternity separated from God. But here's the sad reality. Many Christians are caving to the, to the culture, and some are even church leaders that are caving to our culture in this with this topic. There's a guy, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary um, after my undergrad, and if you guys don't know this, but Dallas is, is a really conservative seminary. It's not a liberal seminary by any means, it's very conservative. And one of my favorite professors who taught me many of my theology classes at Dallas Seminary is a guy named Kent Burgess, and I loved his classes. He was just very thought-provoking and a really good teacher. I think I had about three of my classes with him at DTS. Fast forward a few years, he leaves DTS, he goes and passes a church in, in Pennsylvania, then he, got, I think he went to Oklahoma City, and then last I heard, he was in, I think, Dayton, Ohio, in Pastor's First Baptist Church, Dayton, Ohio. And I just wanted to look up and see where he was and to see where he was at these days. And a few weeks ago, I pulled up his church's website, and it's very clear on the front page of the site where they stand on this topic. And he is someone that I would say has completely caved to the culture on this topic. And it's very obvious when you read through what they say on their site, like where they stand on this particular deal. And I'm thinking, this is someone that taught me in one of the most conservative seminaries in our nation, and yet he has now embraced what I think many in our culture are embracing. And it's just a sad reality. And I think what's interesting is Sam Alberry, who is same-sex attracted but has never acted on it and is also a pastor and theologian, these are the words that he has for someone like my former professor. He says, a church leader who teaches that even certain kinds of homosexual activity are okay 
is actually sending people to destruction. It is not the same order of disagreement as Christians have over, say, baptism or the practice of certain spiritual gifts. In the case of homosexual practice, the gospel is very much at stake. So what we believe and what we say about this topic, I think, is a gospel issue. And now that we've addressed Christians who think it's no big deal, I now want to address believers who think it's worse than other sins. I'll address you now. So Romans 2, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Romans 1 addresses the unbeliever who's living and walking in sin. Romans 2 addresses the religious, self-righteous people, people like us. For many Christians, they read Romans 1 saying, so if you can imagine, Paul's writing this to uh, Jewish believers and even Gentile believers in that area of the world. And you can imagine the first section in, in Romans chapter 1 is written to like the unbeliever, you might call them the pagan, the unbeliever, um, the person really struggling with these outward sins. And then chapter 2 in Romans is written to the Jewish Christian who might be religious but self-righteous. And if those people are hearing chapter 1, they're probably thinking, that's right, Paul, you tell them, you tell those, those sinners what's up. Like, you tell that culture what's up, Paul. And then Paul says, well, chapter 2 is to you, the self-righteous person. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so Paul turns the tables on them and shows that every single one of us is lost apart from Christ. Listen, if anybody should understand brokenness, it should be Christians. If anyone should understand that we're all broken in our sin, it should be us. Like, it's part of our theology. It's part of the, the, the biblical story. And yet, so often, we, we look at the culture around us and want to yell and scream at the culture. And can you believe these people and what they do? Like, well, what do you expect? What, what do you think you'd be doing apart from Jesus so the response isn't condemnation and judgment, meaning that you look down upon someone because, you know, you think you're better than them. That's not what the answer is. But listen, Paul isn't claiming here that everyone is guilty of every sin mentioned in Romans chapter 1, but his point is that everyone is guilty of these sorts of sins and that we're all in need of a Savior. Now listen, Paul is not saying you know, who are you to say whether something is sinful or not? Whenever the Bible talks about people judging, people like to use that verse and say, well, you see, the Bible says don't judge, so you can't say what I did was right or wrong. You can't, you can't do that to me. That's not what the Bible's saying when it uses the word judge. If someone says that same-sex activity is sinful, other people today say, well, who are you to judge? 
and to say what's sinful, mind your own business. That's, that's the response of most people. But Paul's referring to people who stand over other people, looking down upon them because of their sin, and condemning them. He's saying, you're all in the same boat. You're all lost apart from Jesus. And so listen, if you get prideful when someone else calls out the sins of our culture, Romans chapter 2 is for us, if you're in that category. So we've addressed those who think that same-sex activity is no big deal. We've addressed the people in the room who think it's worse than other sexual sins. But if you experience same-sex attraction, I want to say a few things to you this morning. First of all, all of us are broken and sinful in our sexuality. Every single person in this room is broken and sinful in our sexuality. We cannot elevate same-sex desires over other kinds of sexual desires. We can't, we can't do that. We can't say that this is a worse struggle than this is, than this is. We can't say that about these, any of these topics. And listen, if you've heard that message from the church, I want to apologize to you. We are sorry. We repent of that. If we've communicated to you that any certain struggle is above something else, we repent and we say that we're sorry for that. Now listen, same-sex lifestyle is a choice, but the desires, I think, are not always a choice. Now sometimes the desires can come from choices that we've made. If we've been feeding our eyes with images, that can, that can spark desires we never had before sometimes. Or at times people can just start, people start experimenting and they start having desires as a result of that experimentation. But for some people, the, the desires are just there, and there's nothing they've done to necessarily cause that. And we'll speak more to that, I think, even next week. But here's the way you can think about it. We don't always choose our desires, but we choose what to do with those desires. So no matter if we are same-sex attracted or not, all of us have sinful desires of some kind. But listen, your desires are not your identity. Our culture will tell you and preach to you that whatever you desire, that's your identity, and so you should live it out and embrace it. But your desires are not your identity. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, where it says, where Paul concludes that section where he lists out all the different sins, and he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So this isn't just about what sins you've committed, but it's about identity. All of us are born into sin, and sin at birth is our identity. Whenever we, we surrender to Jesus, he washes us, purifies us, declares us righteous before God. So many people see their sexual, their sexual desires as their identity, and I think this verse communicates for any Christian, sin is no longer your identity, but Jesus is. Jesus is. His righteousness is your new identity. Now, this doesn't mean you never struggle or never tempted. I will never tell a same-sex attracted Christian they're not going to have temptation or struggles. I will never tell someone that. Just like I would never tell any of you, anybody else, that you won't have struggles of other kinds. But I think there are two ideas from this passage. We should never elevate same-sex 
desires above other kinds of sin struggles. But I also want to say to you, if you experience this, I do believe that there's healing. Now, it may not be the kind of healing that you expect. I don't think healing does not mean that you're never tempted, but I think that it's that God gives you power over the temptation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, I believe it's possible to experience less frequent, even less powerful temptations. I think that's true of all of our lives, honestly. Anything we struggle with, I think it's true of. So if you are currently experiencing this same-sex desire, I want to say a few things to you as we close. Then we're going to hear testimony on a video. First of all, we love you. And we care about you. And we see this as any other kind of sinful desire or struggle that anybody in this room has. We don't elevate it. And then secondly, again, I want to say to you that we repent of how we've talked about it, joking around about it. I just have flashbacks of things that I said, things that were said to me in high school and junior high, that I say, I have no idea who else heard me say that. Or I laughed at a joke. And so I want to say, we repent of that. We are sorry for that. That is wrong for us to do. But I also want to say to you, encourage you to, to not buy into the lies that our culture is trying to sell you. Because the pendulum swings far where the church has gone, I think, in a bad direction personally and not been compassionate about this topic. But now what's happened is the culture has said, you know, see, they're wrong. And so you need to come over to this side over here. And, and the pendulum swings the other direction where it's just total endorsement, total embrace. And I think that is a lie the culture is trying to sell you. And then lastly, I want to invite you, if you have questions about this or even if you disagree with us, please come and have the conversation with us, whether it be a leader, whether it be with me. There is nothing that we're afraid to talk about here. And so please come and talk to us if um, you'd like to have further conversation about this. I want to close by showing a, a video to you. This is a uh, Jackie Hill Perry. This is really her story. And you'll watch another testimony next week, a longer video. But I wanted to show this um, to you today as we close. Let's go ahead and play this video. My childhood was, I don't want to say typical, but I think typical to those growing up in black communities. Dad was pretty much inconsistent. I saw him maybe every few years. He would just pop in, be in my life for six months, and then pop back out and just show up whenever he felt like it. My mother worked every weekend, so I would spend Sundays with my aunt, who was a Christian. Um, and so she would take me to church with her like every single Sunday, which was incredibly boring, but I enjoyed the popcorn that the kids got and the Skittles. Childhood was a mixture of abandonment, but not knowing that's what that was, mixed with glimpses of God through my aunt, mixed with seeing my mother work hard. I think middle school and high school was me chasing after love from people. I wanted people to tell me that I'm something, that I'm significant, that I'm somebody. And women, I think, uh, became one of the main 
sources of that for me. I was confused. I didn't know what to do. I had these feelings that seemed very natural, these thoughts that seemed super normal to me, but I knew it wasn't normal to culture. I grew up in black church. That's like a no-no <laughs> is to be gay. And so it was projected all the time that this is not okay, but I had read the scriptures pertaining to it being a sin. And so I just believed it. I didn't try to talk myself out of it because to me, I felt like what I read in the scriptures was correlating with the conviction I felt. This feeling correlates with what this is saying. <laughs> it's like, it's not an isolated situation, but I still didn't know how to come to terms with this is how I feel. So I'm gonna do it. The things I knew about scripture, it seemed like they just would not get out of my head. It was just like, God is everywhere. And it was just getting on my nerves. I don't wanna be a Christian. I don't wanna be saved. Because what I thought Christianity to be was people that just didn't do stuff. You don't listen to secular music, you wear long dresses, you go to church all the time and you don't curse. If that's what Christianity is, I'm cool on that. I already didn't have peace, but the reminder of the truth was increasing my awareness of my lack of peace. And so I called uh, one of my cousins who was a believer and she was like, you know what, I believe that God is going to show you how much you need him. I'm like, okay, whatever. I think over the course of some months, that's when I got arrested. My dad ended up passing away from a motorcycle accident, which really broke me because it was kind of like this realization that we'll never talk. From there, me and my mother's relationship was just like, we were not close, we were not cool. It was like everything I was doing, my entire life became uncomfortable. It became isolated, it became just lonely. When I was 19 and feeling God speak to my heart and tell me what you're doing will be the death of you. Like this is not an idea anymore that sin will kill me. It's not an idea anymore that God is not pleased with this. Like this is reality and I have to deal with it today. When I reckoned with that, I knew that I could not save myself. I knew I could not walk away from these things because I enjoyed them way too much. And so I knew from Bible study at church when I was five, you die for people like me. You said you'll forgive people like me. And so I'll just believe that. I was in a church in two weeks wearing girl clothes in a week. That was strange. I wasn't used to wearing regular bras and I had to understand how to sit like a woman again because I was used to sitting like a guy. Just relearning womanness. He did what he had to do to grab me because I would not have chose God apart from God choosing me. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your grace. Um, we know that uh, you, you offer grace to all of us, your mercy to all of us. We pray, God, that um, as these students just reflect and think on your gospel, that's what this message is really about, is your gospel and your grace and mercy to us in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that they reflect on that most of all from this message and these passages. God, I know that, um, that obviously our culture says a lot of different things to us than what's been said today. And God, I pray that as these students wrestle with that and think through that, I pray that they would be um, able to come to us if they have questions or concerns and, and have that conversation with us, Father. I would much prefer they have the boldness to come and have a conversation than just to walk out the door. God, we pray that for them as we discuss these things, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.